Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. Jack, we're hitting the road today. Do you know where we're going? I have a lot of meetings, Jennifer. I don't know where we're where we're going. I I mean, I'm going to like a day of meetings as soon as you and I are done here. But where are you going? Well, you certainly made your life sound very interesting. I, I bet <laughs> listeners they're they're thinking, wow, should I should I listen to the rest of the episode or should I just go with Jack to his meetings? <laughs> <laughs> Be a professor, kids. It may seem like it's all just really fancy research and uh, and changing the world through your teaching, but you find out that the more successful you are, the more it's just meetings. I believe that's what's known as a humble brag. Well, anyway, back to the episode. We are headed to Woodland Park, Colorado. It's not far from Colorado Springs, and it is yet another community that is, well, really going through it right now because their school board has been basically taken over by new conservative leadership. And as I read reporting on stories like this, you know, I keep wondering what it's like to be on the receiving end of really dramatic changes. I wanted to know what it's like to be a kid in a place like Woodland Park, what it's like to be a teacher, what it's like to be a parent. And I accomplished that by interviewing something like a thousand people. (laughs) I believe that too is called a humble brag. Uh, Yeah, this case has been in the news uh, if you read about education controversies. So uh, we're talking about the American birthright history standards here, and the state of Colorado actually rejected them, but Woodland Park in Colorado chose to adopt them. And so uh, I think there's an interesting story here about the increasing politicization of the curriculum and battles between, you know, Uh, liberals and conservatives or progressives uh, and conservatives uh, and, you know, what all this portends for schools elsewhere. Well, Jack, you put your jacket with your leather elbow patches back on and I'm headed to Colorado. Now to the episode. We're headed to Woodland Park, Colorado. It's about an hour and a half south of Denver. And like so many other communities right now, it is being torn apart by politics. And that's new. The people I talked to there told me that this has always been a conservative mountain town. Erin O'Connell is a workforce development specialist. She teaches GED classes at an area nonprofit. And she says that a few years ago, the town started to change. I've been out here about 13 years. It is an extraordinarily conservative community. There is a large Christian population. It is very Republican-based. We are rural. There's a big military and veteran contingent. So that has been the case. But in the last several years, there has been a push for, it really is a push for hate and divisiveness. I hear it from all over the place that there has never been this divisiveness. People say, oh, you know what? I used to never know if my friend was a staunch Republican or what church they went to. And, you know, not that that's 
good or bad. It just was. It wasn't a point of division. And now it is it is very much which side are you on? And and I hate that. I never felt that until a few years ago. In 2021, a conservative slate took over the school board and the local schools, which had been more or less removed from the town's growing partisanship, well, they got thrust right into the middle of it. Aaron's wife is a special education teacher in the district, make that former teacher, but Aaron says that everyone who is part of the school district is feeling the impact of what is essentially a political war. It is not just a personal attack on my wife or my children. I have watched this from ground up. I've seen it affect children, teachers at all grade levels in all district schools. I've seen it affect our administration, our government. I've talked to people from all walks of life, and it is affecting everyone. Okay, so we've got partisan acrimony on the rise, we've got a newly conservative school board, and we have something else, the collision between a highly local institution, that would be the schools, and what are essentially national talking points. Kelly Hunsaker is married to a middle school social studies teacher, and she's a longtime volunteer in the schools. She says that when the board members recently interviewed prospective candidates to fill an opening on the board, the favorite talked like he was on a Fox News show. He brought up the sexualizing of children by our teachers, which he brought up drag queens in schools, which has never happened. So he's bringing up all of the talking points that are in the national news and implying that they're happening in our schools. And Teller County is an extremely conservative county. And so they just are fed by this. You know, they are like, yeah, yeah, we don't want that. They don't care that it hasn't actually happened. It's heartbreaking. I raised an LGBTQ child. He would not be safe in the schools today. I really believe that. My child would not be safe there because of the political climate that our school board is stirring up. And that view of the world has quickly translated into policy. In ways small and large, the board set about transforming the school district. And in their hurry to remake Woodland Park schools, they've often run roughshod over the law. As a former school board member herself, Erin O'Connell is both an expert and a passionate advocate for Colorado's open meeting laws. I stood up before they were sworn in and said, make sure you are very aware of the sunshine laws and said that's that's imperative as an elected official. So while I supported my wife and all of our friends who are teachers and I have students in the district, this was also a very personal thing for me. So right in the beginning, I told them what to watch out for and they just again and again, I've watched them completely ignore the law, feel that they were above the law and push personal agenda. So that's really what made me get into the fight the way that I have. So you've got some context. You know that there are new school sheriffs in town and that they are moving fast. But the aim of this episode is to give you a sense of what it's like to be on the receiving end of the kind of dramatic shift that's underway in Woodland Park. Well, for teachers, it's meant that almost overnight, they've gone from seeing themselves as partners with district leadership to being painted as the enemy. Nate Owen is a teacher and the president of the local teachers union. I am a high school teacher. I teach math and science, uh, mainly calculus, pre-calculus, physics. I also teach an engineering class as well. I've been with the district for almost 12 years now, and it has been home away from home. I know that the students that I have are some of the best students 
they go on and do some great things. I get my students that come back regularly and tell me how fantastic Woodland Park High School has been. And I hear regularly that we prepare them for life after high school. And then we get a school board that comes in and feels like they need to divide, scatter, and conquer both the staff and the students. Nate is not just being rhetorical, by the way. In an email, a board member actually described the teachers in their union as the enemy. Nate says that that change in tone has been really jarring. We've had a great relationship with our district and with our administration team for as long as I can remember. We have meet and confer agreements going back into the 1980s. And this coming up into where we're at now, there's been a drastic shift with listening to voices, with trying to communicate with staff, with trying to even just let the staff know what's going on in the district. We feel in the dark a lot of the time around what the direction of our school district is moving. There's not been a lot of teacher voice in any of the policy changes, including the most recent curriculum change. That curriculum change Nate just referred to was the board's adoption of a controversial set of conservative social studies standards known as American Birthright. We'll be learning a lot more about these with the aid of our own Jack Schneider in just a bit. But know that the Colorado Board of Education recently rejected these same standards because they were viewed as too extreme. And in what has become typical of the new school board, a big change was made quickly and without public input. Here's Kelly Hunsaker again. They put out their agenda for the January meeting two days before the meeting. And on there, there was this moment that says, vote on social studies standards. That's all it said. Didn't even say what standards they were voting on. They had never discussed it in a public meeting. They'd not spoken to a single social studies teacher or any of the principals of the building. And they were just going to vote on this standard. And at the meeting, they didn't take comments. They're like, whatever. And they voted yes. Okay, so we need to hear from some students about what life is like for them these days. First up is junior Jacob D. Smith. And like a lot of the students I talk to, he says that he really thinks of himself as a Woodland Park kid. I've lived in this town for 17 years. I've lived in my house for the my entire life. This town has been a huge part of my life. I've worked in this town. like It's been a huge part for not just my life, but a lot of the other students who are trying to fight so difficultly for this town because it's just been such an important piece for so many people. Jacob is part of a group called the Woodland Park Student Alliance. And when I asked him to describe what school is like right now, he said that a lot of students feel like the school board is targeting them. The fact that that is happening is terrifying. And the environment has become one of more fear. And that's not, you know, what you really want to see in a school. Nobody wants to be scared that they can't learn at their own school. Nobody wants that. Bodie Wolin is a junior at Woodland Park High, and he credits the local schools with making him who he is. But like a lot of kids right now, he's got one eye on the door. I'm graduating in May, a year early. I plan to go to either Lewis and Clark College in Oregon or Western Colorado University. Say my favorite subjects are just along the line of any social sciences or English, involved in skiing, theater. I've been in the Woodland Park School District my entire life since preschool. And that's kind of what's built me as a person. I'd say it's built me into a person that really would like to take joy first, kind of figure out the joys in life and to think and to um, 
be able to, you know, really take in the reality of the world from both sides and just be able to move forward as a whole person. My education, especially like starting in middle school and high school and where being taught to critically think has really helped me. I feel that I've had a whole learning because of that. Like the adults we've been hearing from, Bodhi says that he was aware of the political currents swirling around his community. I think we all kind of knew that there are some big bad wolf kind of things coming to our town. And so within, you know, just being a busy, active high school student and just kind of realizing that that could go away and your teachers could go away. And there was a lot of debate over like LGBTQ books. It was this kind of outside pressure that was kind of enclosing in slowly. You could see it in the distance. And I think that kind of made it feel like there was not really a way out. I think that what I expected actually turned out to be worse. One of the first and most controversial things the new board did was approve the opening of a new charter school called Merit Academy. You can read a glowing write-up about it in the Federalist magazine. But to make room for the new classical-style charter, they had to take space away from kids in the district schools. Here's Jacob again. We see that they're literally getting rid of our spaces Like at the elementary school, they're looking to clear out one of the elementary schools and our middle school for completely other schools, like people that aren't us, not our students. They're more concerned about the other schools than us. And what's terrifying about that is the fact that they're charter schools. So this is money for them and not money for us. This doesn't help our students at all. This just severely impacts our ability to learn, especially for those that are younger and are more impressionable, especially those in an elementary school who might not know what's happening. I spoke to an eighth grader who asked that we not use his name. He says that the decision to take space away from existing students is having a real impact on their learning. We lost a lot of space, and now eighth graders, seventh graders, sixth graders, they're all crammed into these same halls, which is just not the ideal learning space right now. It's hard to, like, go places when you have passing periods because everything's just being used up. And like a lot of students in Woodland Park right now, this one is now contemplating leaving because he's no longer sure that this district has a place for him. I've always been an anxious type of person and like stressed about things really quickly and easily. But having to make this hard decisions about like the next high school, like it's definitely put on a lot of stress and made me feel, I don't know, like uncomfortable sometimes about how things are going in this district which I had planned to go all the way through with high school with, but now I'm still trying to understand what I want in my future. So Jack, right at the center of this story are these American birthright standards. And even that that name is just so great. And when we talk about this stuff, I feel like these names sort of spin by. We hear about Hillsdale, we hear about the Civic Alliance, but we never go into any depth. And I thought it would be really helpful if you just kind of laid out for people, what what is this? (laughs) Yeah, this is a set of patriotic history standards. And of course, the difference between standards and a curriculum is that standards are what students are supposed to know and be able to do at the end of a course sequence. And the curriculum is how you get there. And in the United States, we tend to devolve questions of curriculum to the local level. So because that is our birthright. (laughs) 
That is, in fact, it is, right? We have this history of local control. There has long been opposition to the perceived centralization of curriculum questions and even questions about standards. If, you know, there is a perception that they are being centralized too much, recall the sound and fury around the common core, right, uh, will produce lots of resistance. And so, Standards tend to be the way that people try to get at the curriculum. And in this case, we've got a set of standards that include lots of things that many Americans would probably raise questions about, like the very first standard. They go in order. Um, this is a, a K through 12 set of standards. And so the very first standard listed is describe why we celebrate Columbus Day, right? And that's a kind of shot across the bow there, right? Take your Indigenous Peoples Day and stuff it and explain why Columbus is a hero and should be celebrated and includes other things, you know, like the importance of the Reagan presidency without a lot of critical treatment of it. And so that has produced some pushback. And then you also want to pay attention to, well, what's not there? And a lot of people have been talking about, you know, the absence of uh, a full portrait of American heroes, American villains, um, you know, periods of history, critical treatment of history. So the National Council for Social Studies uh, wrote a, a statement about this saying basically that they don't support uh, the American birthright standards and naming a couple of um, standards documents that they do get behind. So there's the NCSS framework um, that they created, the C3 framework, Educating for American Democracy. So there are lots of alternatives here. And uh, the American birthright standards, we also want to pay attention to who is behind these standards. And it's a who's who of conservative groups, think tanks, um, you know, niche departments. So, you know, particular colleges and universities are known for having right-wing departments of sometimes it's economics, sometimes it's political science or history. Um, the racial makeup of the, the membership of their advisory boards, the people who wrote these standards, et cetera, um, is you know, predominantly white, as one would expect from a set of standards that really is elevating uh, a predominantly white and traditional and some would say quite outdated approach to American history. Well, one of the things that I find so fascinating but also really infuriating is that, you know, the people who back these standards insist that this is merely a corrective, right, that they are stepping in to depoliticize the classroom. But even in your brief description, you can hear that that's not what's happening at all. Right. Absolutely. So they say that they are responding to a hollowing out of liberal education, to politicization of the classroom, to trivialization of scholarship and teaching, the disappearance of core curricula. They're basically saying that a content-rich classroom that was devoid of politics has now been invaded by a bunch of liberal nonsense. And they're just simply trying to clear out the noise and get us focused back on key subjects, which according to them have been marginalized. Um, 
get the Western civilization back at the center of everything and get rid of, and this is their language, get rid of current, popular, marginal, ephemeral subjects. And that really does speak to a deep belief that some people's histories really are marginal, right? And, and, and should remain there. And that some topics, even though they may be of pressing urgency right now, uh, you know, maybe don't need to be covered in the social studies classroom, right? And they're, they're right in the sense that you can depoliticize education by refusing to engage with what's happening right now in the world. But of course, they're not recognizing that itself is a political choice. Okay, back to Woodland Park. Several years ago, the schools here did what a lot of school districts were doing at the time. They tried to give students more say over how and what they were taught. The thinking was that students would then achieve at higher levels. They'd go on to college, etc. In Woodland Park, that meant bringing in the Summit Learning Platform, a topic that deserves an entire other episode. There were also new electives that students could take including one called Sources of Strength. It's actually central to this story, so we're going to dwell here for a bit, starting with a high school student, we'll call her Oski, who is a big fan of the class. It's definitely a class where everyone knows each other, we're very vulnerable with each other. It's a really tight-knit community, yet everyone who comes in, because the class changes each semester, depending on like who gets to be in the class based on schedules, and it changes every semester, and every semester is the same open, really friendly feel. Oski says that for her and many of her peers, Sources of Strength has been transformative, helping them find their voices and figure out how to use them. You know, it gets you out of your bubble. It makes you realize the power that um, one person can have on a life and really all the things you can do um, for your school just in like a small campaign. And then more about like the connections that people can have and it was really cool to see the leadership in myself grow and then as well as everybody else in the class. They really feel comfortable at the end of the course and at the beginning they might not be able to share what they think about a question in a circle, but at the end they're ready to take on what life has to offer. If you are sensing a collision drawing near, well, you would be right. But first, we need to meet the teacher who created the course, taking what is essentially a national suicide prevention program and customizing it into something to help build fearless students. That would be Sarah Lee. And she says that of all the hats she has worn during her 18 years in Woodland Park, media specialist, theater teacher, dean of students during COVID, Sources of Strength has been the most meaningful. We received some grant, federal grant funding and took this program and myself and a, a colleague were able to turn this into a leadership and student empowerment class where we focus on bringing hope, help, and strength to our community through empowering our peer leaders to figure out what their peers need and how to make that tangible for their peers. Their national peer leader motto is to be connectors to help and agents of change. That is the class that I teach, that I taught. I'm working on changing my vocabulary. 
Q Collision. The project that these Woodland High Schoolers decided to take on was essentially the new conservative school board. The board had a candidate in mind for district superintendent, a controversial figure named Ken Witt, who'd previously been recalled from another Colorado school board after arguing that the AP history curriculum wasn't patriotic enough. And the students decided to weigh in. They asked questions, did their own research, and with the permission of their parents, staged a walkout. The blowback was immediate. They briefly interviewed me, let me know that I was on leave until an investigation was completed. So I went home and then my students were individually interviewed by the school administrative staff throughout the day. And at about five-ish o'clock that evening, um, I got a phone call from the HR director that I had been cleared, but that we needed to have a meeting the next day because there were going to be basically some reprimands. And the next day I received a two-page letter of reprimand. And mind you, I've been teaching for 28 years. I haven't even had a warning Now, Sarah was not part of the walkout or its planning. The class, after all, is student-run. She stayed behind with the students who felt like they still didn't know enough to participate. But to the board members who were on a mission to root out indoctrination, here was an example. Things came to a head at the next school board meeting when the board chair, who had already nixed the idea of students asking questions of Ken Witt directly, put his own spin on the written questions they'd submitted. In a very public and live-streamed interview, he stood up and started to what we thought was ask the questions the students had written, but in fact, he changed them on the spot without the knowledge or consent of the students because he felt that they were not appropriate or kind or whatever. What's ironic is that the question was about how students will know that their voice is valued by the superintendent and his decision-making, and yet their voice was being altered by the board president. And I stood up and said, you don't value their voice. It's obvious you don't. And if you did, you would have met with them today when you had the opportunity. My husband was with me and we walked out of the meeting. The next day I was put on administrative leave once again, and it was 31 days before I heard anything from the district about my fate. For the students, the accusations that Sarah had basically engineered their protests were frankly infuriating. Students like Oski saw sources of strength as their class, something the board members didn't seem to understand at all. I think that if they actually went into the class and saw how it worked, they would have very different opinions because I feel like lots of people think that the adult advisors or the They think they're teachers. We call them adult advisors because they're not technically leading the class. They're our mentors. They think that they have all these things planned out for us and then we do them. But really, they're more like guidelines. If the class decides that they don't want to do it, then we don't have to do it. We just choose another thing that achieves the same goal. And for Sarah, what made this experience all the more disorienting and frankly devastating was that sources of strength had proven effective in helping students develop all the sorts of skills that we're supposed to value. It's really sad because it is truly to empower civil discourse, to empower choice and voice and and reasoning. I mean, that's what employers are saying hands down across the country that they want from employees. And so 
you know, I have always felt that that was the right thing to do as an educator. It's amazing what empowered and strong students who are also incredibly intelligent are able to do when they are given an opportunity. No, the collision I mentioned, it isn't just between conservative board members and this particular teacher. It's really about conflicting visions of how to do school. The president of the school board sees himself as a voice for parents who want to return to traditional lines of authority, where the teacher is the expert. As for giving kids the skills to be participants in democracy, well, that seems to be a particular target. Here's Jacob DeSmit again. Essentially, the Action Civics program was encouraging students to go out and participate in local or statewide government politics, like participating in elections, learning how they function or run, participating in our local government. And when we don't have the ability to even learn about that anymore, that's going to just further contribute to the problem. So people need to be able to learn and to be able to reach out and learn for themselves and study these things because it's not just something you should go along with, whichever, just go with the flow. It's not something that that, a choice. And the thing is, this may be a scary and more rude awakening to the real world for a lot of people because it is. It's terrifying to have to be in this much of a, like this big of a deal because it's something that doesn't it just involve you or your grade. It involves everybody that you know. Like it will directly influence everybody. It's something that needs to be discussed and needs to be brought to light for a lot of people who haven't been brought to light. So what happens now? Well, for Sarah Lee, her 18 years at Woodland Park is over. She was involuntarily transferred to an elementary school, then made the difficult decision to leave the district for good. I've been honored to be an educator for 28 years, and it's been an honor to impact the lives of the students and families of Woodland Park for so long. If the letters and emails and messages I've been getting attest to anything, it's that I I think I've left a legacy of making a difference in the lives of kids who really needed someone to see them. Lots of teachers are considering leaving. While there's no data yet, the anecdotes about teachers making a move or retiring early abound, and parents are following them. Kim Morris has kids in the district and is a longtime volunteer in the schools. She says that the school board's political agenda is constraining not just what kids can learn, but how far they can go. Part of the reason that I feel it's necessary to move our kids is a proper education as far as sex education and social studies education. As you know, we are the first district to adopt these uh, American birthright standards. I feel like my son is on a college path and I do not want him to graduate from high school, go to college and be embarrassed by what he has been taught in high school civics or history, social studies classes that other kids No, and he doesn't know. But while teachers, parents, and students may be heading for the doors, that does not mean that they are giving up the fight. Erin O'Connell, who we met way back at the start of this episode, has been relentless in trying to shine a light on what the board is really up to, including filing a lawsuit over the board's violation of open meeting laws. She says that it's been grueling, but that she plans to keep going. I think a lot of times people either in positions of power or with money or who are serving their own agenda say, if we can put so much of the burden on the people against us, they will stop fighting. 
It's been extraordinarily difficult time-wise, financially. It's taken an emotional toll. It's impacted my ability to be with and connect with my family and friends. It has taken an extraordinary toll on my life and everyone who has been a big part of it the last year. As for the students, Jacob says that it is essential that they keep speaking up because theirs are the voices that matter most. The student group that has been majorly involved with this is honestly too small, and we need to have more of our voice shown. We did have those protests before um, Christmas break that were wildly influential. Like, we did have an impact. We got our voices out there, and we had news sources that picked up on that. But it's not enough because we still haven't been heard to the extent. And we are the students. We are the people who are literally being affected directly by this. And when we have people that are directly interfering with our ability to learn, that's detrimental. And our students need to speak up. A lot of people don't even know truly what's happening. And I've been trying my best to explain that. And if there's any students that are listening to this, if you would like to talk to me, I am open. But a lot of people don't know. And it's kind of sad that a lot of people don't know because they need to know so we can all thrive as a student body and we can all pursue an education that matters most to us. The protests, the news stories, they're having an impact. The board recently withdrew a plan to open yet another charter school. And after a teacher was ordered to stop teaching from Ta-Nehisi Coates' book Between the World and Me as part of an elective social studies class on collective action, Chris Hayes reported on it. Maybe even this little podcast will make a difference. But the lesson here is not just about how to push back when top-down culture war comes to your town. It's also that top-down culture war can come to just about any town. Here's Bodie Wolin again. We're a mountain town, so by nature, mountain towns are more conservative, and that's just you know always how it has been. I never would think that my town would turn into such a petri dish for extremism that it is now. It can happen to anyone. It could happen in some random suburb in Connecticut. It could happen in New York. It can happen anywhere, and you have to watch out for that. And I think that's not something that we did. So if you're listening to this in a place that's blissfully removed from attacks on action civics or classical charter schools aren't even a thing, Jacob has some words of advice for you. It is not even funny how quickly stuff can happen. A lot of students think that drama and stuff with school boards and um, politics with that are just, they're not real politics to a lot of people. And the thing is, they are real politics. And I'm someone who actively pursues civil debate and politics. It's not just school. It's more influential and important than that because it genuinely affects everybody. But these students that either don't know about it and don't want to listen to what's happening, it's not that they're the problem, but they just need to be able to listen to what's happening because it genuinely will affect them and their ability to learn. Like, it's something that, although sad to say, you should be scared about. It's something you should be terrified about because it's being rampant. We see it happening everywhere. A big thanks to everyone in Woodland Park who shared their stories for this episode. Sarah Lee, Bodie Wolin, Kim Morris, Nate Owen, Aaron O'Connell, Jacob D. Smith, and Kelly Hunsaker. And to Matt Golowski for inspiring the episode in the first place. And Jack and I will be right back to discuss the return of an old-timey vision of school in Woodland Park and beyond. And we'll be revealing the topic of this episode's In the Weed segment. Here's a hint. If schools are now going to be responsible for producing patriots and Christians, how will we measure their success? If this intrigues you, just go to patreon.com slash haveyouheardpodcast and become a supporter.
So Jack, as I was talking to the roughly 1,000 people whom I interviewed for this episode, I kept hearing your voice in my head and the voice was uttering three of your favorite words. Can you guess <laughs> what I'm referring to? Uh, apprenticeship of observation. I can't believe there were multiple three-word uh, phrases. Ex- excellence for all. Institutional isomorphism. <laughs> oh, that's two. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, or Mary Matt's real school. Uh, that's two words, real school. Uh, grammar of schooling. Um, Ding! The, oh, really? Grammar of schooling? The, the grammar of four words, Jennifer. But oh, it's I left off the, art, the, the initial article. Yeah. Well, so the point is that one theme that came up again and again is that the a big part of the objection that we're hearing from these conservative school boards is, is that they no longer recognize what, you know, their conception of school and what's happening today. And the schools in Woodland Park really made a big shift towards towards student-centered learning. We heard so much about it from, from reform groups. And I'm thinking about, you know, Gates and the small schools movement, the idea that if you put students in charge of their learning, they'd get more out of it. And then we'd recognize the payoff in terms of college and career readiness. And so I just thought it was so interesting that that for all the talk we've heard about how, you know, the schools look like factories, they haven't changed. The objection in this case is that they've changed too much. And we need to go back to a time where the lines of authority were really clear. Right, right. Yeah. I'm actually thinking of one of my incorrect answers, one of the two-word phrases that I used when I was trying to, to guess the correct favorite phrase of mine. And... Um, that is the idea of real school uh, that Mary Metz wrote about in the, it was like the late 1980s, I think, early 1990s. And it's very connected to the idea of the grammar of schooling. So when David Tyack and Larry Cuban wrote about the grammar of schooling, what they were talking about, of course, was the metaphor of language and that the grammar of schooling in the same way that grammar in language really constrains what we are able to do. So there are, um, you know, frames in school, sometimes literal, right, the building itself, that prevent us from being able to really radically experiment. And the Mary Metz idea of real school is slightly different and I think perfectly appropriate for what you're talking about because what she was saying is that we have these cultural conventions. We have these expectations around what a quote-unquote real school is and that those expectations can really get in the way. Sometimes we can observe that schools are actually not really doing a great job of educating young people, but they're doing the formal work of a real school, right? That students have been given homework, they have books, they're sitting in the desks, they're quiet, the instructor is up front, right? These are the elements of a real school that um, can help shore up the legitimacy of activity that may, at its heart, not be particularly legitimate. And another way we can see the phenomenon of the quote-unquote real school shaping the way that we engage with education and the idea of schooling is that we really want to see schools look a particular way. And if they don't, then 
we lose our faith in the process of schooling, right? That's not a real school. And you can see it most clearly, I think, in the extreme examples. So if you have a school that does not meet in a building, that meets outside, where there is not a teacher who is leading uh, what students are doing, where students are doing it themselves, right? That may be very educative, but nobody is going to recognize that as a school. And so then we can begin moving a little bit closer towards the traditional conception of a school and see, okay, well, there's a building, there's a teacher in the classroom, there's a classroom, there's a curriculum, there are books. That feels more real to people. And so the further we get from the center and move more towards the periphery, the more that schools are going to have to work to build trust and to build acceptance of the fact that what they're doing is legitimate. And this is something that I talk about all the time on our show is what we take for granted. And a lot of times what we take for granted actually really gets in the way, right? We take for granted the fact that we fund with our tax dollars an education that is mostly pretty adequate for 50 million kids a year. And so you know, we say terrible things about the public education system and don't think twice about it and rarely say positive things. But uh, some of the things that we take for granted actually are pretty important to the functioning of the system. Like we just take it for granted that we don't really know what's being taught inside any one classroom at any one time. We accept that it's legitimate. We accept mostly that educators are professionals, that the people who are making decisions about curriculum have made good choices that reflect the things that most of us want to be happening in schools. We accept all of those things, even though, you know, if we raise questions about it, uh, it could undermine the entire process. And, and that, of course, is something that's happening right now with the attack on schools and claims about CRT and uh, gender indoctrination and teachers, you know, pushing their political agendas. So I think all of this is really worth paying attention to. Well, Jack, you're not going to believe it, but once again, you have set me up perfectly to transition <laughs> into my regular sales pitch for Patreon because I've been thinking about how in the world is accountability going to fit into this? As I was talking to these students in particular, and I heard how in their voices, how disorienting it was for them to have, to be at a school that just a few years ago con was considered, you know, like quite a success story and that, you know, they were being congratulated on on the the metrics that were supposed to matter but now the whole underpinnings of that are really shifting and we're going to need to come up with a new accountability system that measures things like patriotism mm. that measures things like like how christian the the students are and how how they vote right and mm. so i really wanted to get your take on that and i know my favorite thing is just to spring a topic on you and then <laughs> and then to to measure in the weeds, whether or not you actually have uh, uh, an opinion that's worth anything. So if this <laughs> if this appeals to all of you out there in listener land, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter. Right now we have a very special offer. If you subscribe at the $10 a month level, you get a copy of the new paperback edition of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door that includes a preface where we we basically acknowledge that we didn't quite 
get how bad things were going to be. And if you are not lured by the draw of my potential embarrassment, uh, then, and by, by the way, spoiler alert, rarely am I as unprepared as Jennifer would like me to be, um, then there are lots of other ways to support the show. Uh, please make sure that you're a subscriber so that the latest episode just automatically downloads onto your device. Give us a rating if you haven't, and we think it helps people find the show. The best way to help people find the show is, of course, to share it via word of mouth. That's how we grow. Uh, and we love when we see on Twitter, for instance, we're not yet on all the other social channels, uh, but we love when we see somebody just having discovered the show, thanking a friend who recommended it and tagging the show's handle. We can see that, um, and and that always feels great, as does reading some of your feedback in the Have You Heard mailbag. So if you want to contact us, just go to haveyouheardpodcast.com, and then there's a form on there where you can send us a message. We do love all those things. And we love going into the weeds, which is where we're headed now. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. Have you heard?